The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. Well, good evening once again. My name is Tom Gorzalski. As I said before, I'm a senior at the seminary, which means uh, if I pass my classes this year, at this time next year, I'll be able to have my own church. Um, But it's my privilege and honor to be able to share God's word with you this evening. And as I start this message off today, I have a question that I want you to think about. And that is, is this church a welcoming church? And I've been here for a while, and I understand, yeah, yeah, we're friendly here, right? We, we welcome people in, we uh, shake their hands, we're, we're friendly. Um, but what if we don't mean welcoming just in the sense that friendly? What about welcoming to people who are a little rough around the edges? Do we say you're welcome here, or do we say you need to clean yourself up first? I think it's good for churches to wrestle with these questions. Or are we actually welcoming to outsiders, to people who don't fit the normal Christian good person mold? Uh, it's, I think sometimes churches fall into the temptation where they start to act like a roller coaster. Because you know like roller coasters, before you get on the ride, there's a sign that usually says, you must be this tall to go on the ride. And I think sometimes churches put up signs like that as well. You must be this good of a person before you can come here. You must have this much Bible knowledge before you can come to one of our Bible classes. Have you ever seen any of those signs in front of this church? And I think if you asked everyone here, no one would say, yeah, I want to be judgmental. Yeah, I want to be exclusive to outsiders. But I think it's something that if you go to church for a long time, um, it can easily turn into following the rules, doing the right things, following the requirements more so than God's grace. And that's a problem. That's a problem that happens to many churches, and that's a problem that we're going to look at today in our lesson. Jesus had to confront a group of chief priests and elders who had this problem. They looked good in the outside, uh, but they cared too much about following the rules and not so much about God's grace. So Jesus had to confront them of this problem, and he did that by telling a story. And that's the story we're going to look at today. It's called The Parable of the Two Sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. And that's the story. It's a a pretty simple story. There's only three characters. There's the father. And he has two sons, and he tells them to go to work. And the first son said, no, not going to do it. Which might not sound super disrespectful to our culture, but back then his response would have been super disrespectful. He doesn't say, please, Father, forgive me, but I can't go today, or I wish I could, but I can't. He just says, no, not going to do it. Uh, But later, what happened? He changed his mind, and then he went to go work in the vineyard. That's the first son, but what about the second son? The second son said, I will, sir. He looked obedient, he looked good on the outside, uh, but what happened? He didn't actually listen to the father. He didn't actually go work in the vineyard. That's the story. And now Jesus is going to ask these religious leaders a question about it. He said, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. 
That makes sense, right? You know, if, they're, if you're a parent and you tell your child to go clean up your room, but the child first throws a tantrum and then d but actually goes to clean his room, um, that's better than just saying, yeah, I'll clean my room, but never does it. The point of it is to get the job done, right? And the first son, even though he was openly disobedient at first, he changed his mind, and then he went and did what his father did. That makes sense. They, the first one, they got it. They, the one that actually did the work was the one who did the father's will. But now Jesus, he's going to bring this all together and say what the main point of this story was. And it's going to be a super controversial, super shocking statement that he's going to say next. And here it is. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. You hear that? The tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in line to the kingdom of heaven before these religious leaders. Imagine how shocking that would be. The tax collectors and prostitutes, they are considered like the scum of their day. Uh, the tax collectors, they were the embodiment of someone who sins with money. Financially speaking, they're the ones um, that they were considered the worst of the worst when it came to financial sins. And prostitutes, well, they were prostitutes. They embodied the worst of the worst sexual sins. So what Jesus is saying here is that these lowest people in our society, the morally worst people in our society, are getting in line to the kingdom of heaven before you guys. Imagine how they would have reacted to that. Imagine hearing that for the first time. As I said before, I'm a seminary student. That means that every day I go to a seminary classroom and we wear our nice suits, we have some big books, we uh, do look good on the outside. But I want you to imagine that you're in my, uh, my classroom with me, and one day a professor comes in, and he's talking to the seminary class, and he says, yeah, I have two people I'd like to introduce to you. Uh, right here is Troy, the tax collector, and right next to him is Polly, the prostitute. Okay, what are these guys doing here? And then the professor says, these two people know more about God's grace than you do. Uh, what? Can you imagine how that would go down? And you say, but I'm the one that's going to Bible school. I'm the one that reads the Bible all the time. I look good on the outside. I'm the one who's been studying for so long. And you're telling me that these two people know more about God's grace than me? Now, don't get me wrong. I am not trying to say that every seminary student, every professor, every pastor is a closet Pharisee. Not what I'm trying to say. But just imagine how shocking that would have been to tell the religious leaders that they don't get it, that they don't know how to get to heaven. That would have been a pretty shocking statement. And that's a problem that they had. So Jesus had to expose that problem, which leads to our first point today of what their problem is. If you're taking notes, um, I'm going to call their problem second son syndrome, also more commonly known today as moralism. The idea with moralism is preferring good rules over the good news. That's what uh, these religious leaders were struggling with. Uh, they kept all the good rules. They looked good on the outside. Everyone in society would have said, yeah, these are good people. They follow the rules. They wear the nice, long-flowing robes. These are the good people. But the problem was they started to care too much about following the rules than actually caring about the good news of Jesus. There was the message to them to repent. And they said, repent for what? I'm not cheating people out of their money like the tax collectors. I'm not selling my body like a prostitute. Repent for what? That's a problem. 
They thought that they were right with God simply because they were following all the good rules. I think that's something that's easy for us to fall into as well. Where we begin to talk about how we are right with God because of something that I did. I'm basically a good person, right? I've been going to church pretty regularly for most of my life. I went to a Bible college for a couple of years. I have this one Bible verse refrigerator magnet, and it's on my refrigerator. Uh, I quite often have my Bible open with a cup of coffee, and I take a picture of it and put it on Instagram and with the caption, hashtag blessed. Doesn't that mean I'm all right with God? Doesn't that mean I do good things? Right? But it's so easy for us to fall into that idea that Christianity is about following the good rules instead of the good news. And I think if you've grown up in the church, you've probably had it pounded into you that you don't get to heaven by your own blood, sweat, and tears. Especially if you're Lutheran. You know that, right? But I think even though you know you don't get to heaven by your own blood, sweat, and tears, it's an easy temptation to fall in that I keep myself in the faith by my own blood, sweat, and tears. But really, God is the one who gave you your faith. And he's the one who keeps you in your faith as well. Not following good rules. And I think you understand that this is damaging on an individual level. If you start to think that, yeah, I can do it myself, I don't really need a savior, that, that's very damaging. But it's also very damaging on a church level as well. There have been many surveys out there lately examining uh, the churches in America, most recently done by uh, Barna, a survey group. But if you read any articles about why young people are leaving the church, I think these three words always come up. Because the church is hypocritical, judgmental, and irrelevant. The church is full of hypocrites. They're, they judge outsiders, and the message that they have is unimportant to my life. Why do you think the church gets that reputation? Is there any chance that it could be because of second son syndrome? The second son who looked good on the outside but didn't actually do what his father wanted. And I think you know just how damaging that is if a church is marked by these characteristics and how guilty we have been for living up to that. Um, it pushes outsiders away. People don't want to come in because we're judgmental and hypocrites. That, that's a problem. That's, that's the issue that we have to wrestle with. Um, so, but the issue with it as well is, I don't think anyone in this room would willingly admit, if I asked, show your hands if uh, you're guilty of moralism, people aren't going to say, yeah, that's something I struggle with. I doubt Pastor Hines ever had anyone come to his office and say, Pastor, I've really been struggling with moralism. I've got to talk to you about it. We don't admit that this is a problem that we have. So tonight, I'm going to give you a test. One question to see if this is something you could possibly be struggling with. And that question is, how do you view unsaved, gross sinners? Is there anyone in your life where you look at them and say, that person could never become a Christian? They're too bad. Do you realize, though, if you look at the tax collectors of this world and say, they could never be converted, that you are doubting the power of God? Do you realize that if you look at the prostitutes of this world and say they could never be converted, that you are not understanding that you are just as much a miracle as anyone else's for your conversion? It's very easy for us to fall into the pattern that we are right with God because of the good rules, because we follow those rules. But deep down, each one of us has the greedy heart of a tax collector 
And we also have the pleasure-seeking heart of the prostitute. But it gets worse than that, because we also have the morally upright, judgy heart of the religious leaders as well. The judgmental heart that says, I don't need God. The proud heart that says, I don't need a savior. I, I, I keep the rules. And God says that type of person has no place in the kingdom of God. So how do we get in line to the kingdom of heaven then? How do we get in line to that? Well, Jesus is going to make that clear in the next verse. He says, For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So how do you get in line to the kingdom of heaven? Well, be like a tax collector and the prostitute. I bet you've never heard a preacher tell you that before, to be like a tax collector and a prostitute. But why do I say that? Well, because the second sons in our story, the, the, the religious leaders, uh, they looked good on the outside, but when John the Baptist came and told them to repent and believe in Jesus, they said, repent for what? Well, what did the tax collector and the prostitute do? They repented, and they believed in Jesus. And that's the whole point of this. this is, that's the whole point of the story, is that God wants repentant hearts from us. That God wants us to turn from our evil ways. That God wants us to believe that Jesus paid for everything in our life. Um, and how do we get in line to the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not found in either of those sons. It's not found in the first son, the idea because he was openly rebellious. It's not found in the second son either because uh, he also didn't listen to the father. But it's found in a different son, a third son, the son who was standing right before them, the narrator of this story. Jesus Christ was the perfect, obedient son that God sent. Jesus Christ was the one son who said, yes, I will go work, and actually went to go do it. Jesus was the son who came to this world and hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And he was also the same son who led these people to repentance, who said, uh, to the religious leaders who kept calling them to expose their errors because he wanted them to come to the kingdom of heaven as well. The same Jesus who came and died for us. He died for all of our sins, the sins of greed and selfishness and lust, but also the same sins of having a proud heart or a judgmental attitude. Through that son, that's how we are accepted in God's eyes. Which leads to point number two. The Father accepts us because of his Son, not our record. It's very easy for us to fall into the temptation that it's something that we do. It's something that we do to make ourselves right with God. But it's not about our record. It's about the Father sending his perfect Son to save us from that. It's not about what we do. I kind of like to picture it like a husband and wife talking to each other. And one asks, Honey, why do you love me? Uh, what if, let's just say, a husband would respond with, Honey, I love you because of your figure. Guys, I don't recommend trying that one out. Uh, because uh, what if your husband or wife responds that way with, I love you because of your figure, your humor, your personality. Uh, that's so much pressure on the other spouse, right? Because then you have to live up to that standard. What if your figure changes? What if your jokes aren't hilarious in a couple of years? Uh, that's a lot of pressure, right? Uh, but what if a spouse says, 
I love you because I love you. It's a mystery. I love you because I love you. And that's the way that God loves us. That's what this whole parable is about. A father loving his children simply because he loves them. Simply because he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Not because of anything that we've done, but solely because of the perfect obedient son that he sent. And that's what this whole parable is about. But I almost wonder, do you think that this is a good title for this parable? The parable of the two sons. I mean, it makes sense, right? There's a, there's a father with two sons. But the reason I ask that uh, is because normally when you have a book or a movie, you don't make the title about the villain. Last time I checked, it's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, not Draco Malfoy and the Deathly Hallows. Uh, so why parable the two sons? The two sons, they both had issues. The first son was disobedient. The second son didn't listen to his father. Uh, so why make the title of the story about the disobedient sons? Instead, what if we gave it this name instead? The parable of the loving father. Because that's what this whole parable is about. A father begging their ch his children to repent. A father who welcomes his children with open arms saying, repent for all you've done wrong. A, a father who accepts his children because of all the things that they've done wrong in the past. And a father who continues to give us all a warm embrace uh, because of what Jesus has done for us. And knowing that this parable is about a loving father, can we as a church reflect that same love as a father to anyone who walks through those doors? Can we be a church that welcomes outsiders with the same loving embrace that our Father does? Can St. Marcus continue to be a place for the broken? Can St. Marcus continue to be a place for the tax collectors and prostitutes of this world? Can we be a place that when someone says, I don't know if I should come here, I've done some pretty bad things, can we say, come on in, you'll fit right in? Can we be some messy people who point to our merciful Father? Can we be a lifeboat for drowning sinners instead of a cruise ship for the wealthy? Can we be a church that continues to point to our community that our church is about good news, not good rules? Can we point people to the Father's warm embrace? I know this is hard, but only through the strength of our Father. Experiencing the warm embrace of our Father and experiencing the love that he has for us by sending his son Jesus, we too can show the same love to outsiders. And all God's people said, Amen.